Hey, you're listening to Cut for Time, a podcast from Faith Church located on the north side of Indianapolis. My name is Claire Kingsley. Each week, I'll sit down with one of our preaching pastors to discuss their Sunday sermon. Cut for Time is a look behind the scenes of sermon preparation, and they'll share with us a few things that we didn't hear from the sermon on Sunday. Thanks for listening. All right, so Joey, here we are. It's Thursday, which is not normal. I'll just be transparent. We recorded back on Wednesday, or sorry, we recorded on Monday, so we could release Uh it on Wednesday. I went to edit, and the audio was all garbled. Like, we don't understand why. So um, here we are recording. Yeah, and so it's going to be a little late for people, but um, hopefully they're so intrigued by you, you know, (laughs) dropping that, like that uh, message in on verses 23 or 22 and 23 like if you want to hear more so you want to hear more one one can only hope that we left people hanging yes that's right (laughs) that it's still on their minds four days later and they're like when (laughs) is he gonna explain this yeah so are we just jumping right into that yeah well why don't you just give us a recap from your sermon on sunday what you did get a chance to explain and then we'll jump into verses 22 and 23 Awesome. Sure. So uh, we're working our way through Matthew for now, and we're up into Matthew chapter 12. And this is a section where the opposition uh, to Jesus by the Pharisees is just increasing and increasing and increasing. And it comes to a boiling point here in these these verses. So there's a healing story, um, which is told in just one verse. It's It's got to be the shortest healing story, miracle story in the Bible. And mm-hmm. <clears throat> So uh, the, the, the miracle itself isn't really the point. The point is everything that happens after it and the confrontation after it in which the Pharisees accuse Jesus of doing all of his miraculous work through the power of Satan or Beelzebul or the evil one. And uh, Jesus is like, that's not, no, that's, no, that's not how this is working. And uh, from there, it even goes on to say like, look, if you're seeing what is obviously the work of God and the work of the spirit. And you're saying that's evil. Like th- there's no coming back from that. There's no, you can't find forgiveness for that. Cause you're so entrenched in your way of, of seeing the world that you're never going to come around. So the point of, or at least the point that we explained out of the whole passage is Jesus is the one who's forcing a, a decision. As we've watched the opposition increase and increase, he's forcing a decision. Mm-hmm. Who do you think he is? Um, what's his role? in your life. And so for us, you know, we talked about some of us just need to make this decision that yet yeah, Jesus is who he says he is, that he's the one who saves us and redeems us and releases us from sin. Um, and for the others of us who have made that decision already, it's deciding once again, that Jesus is as big as he says he is not just giving him the parts of our lives that we're okay with and comfortable with, but giving him everything. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So you didn't have a chance to explain verses 22, 23. You actually told us what was going to be cut for time and that they should <laughs> yeah. listen to cut for time if they want to learn more. We had a lot of people text in and say they're interested to learn more. So what can you share from your study from those verses? Uh, yeah. Well, it, and there's just so much in here um, and so much fascinating language just in Matthew 20, uh, 12, 22. And so, well, we didn't take any time to really develop. I just kind of had to take it for granted is a recognition of the power and presence of evil in the world, uh, that there is such a thing as evil and that evil even seems to exist in, in personal ways or in personality in a sense of like, it feels, you know, you can feel like you're being whatever stalked by evil or that evil is a force that 
does things in the world. And, you know, I didn't take all the time to try to develop that idea, just kind of assume that we're all, or most of us are there. Um, in in Jesus's time, a lot of that, the way of describing evil um, was using this language of demon oppression or demon possession, um, or through characters or figures like Satan or Beelzebul or Beelzebub, depending on the name. So in, in verse 22, right, it, it just, it just like in chapters eight and nine, where there were lots of um, people who were sick and people who were demon oppressed or demon possessed, um, that shows up right here in Matthew 12. And it starts with, then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him. And, and there's a couple of just interesting things right in that, that one phrase. Um, first is the word demon oppressed. Depending on the translation you're reading, you may have demon oppressed or demon possessed. Mm-hmm. And in, in Greek, um, well, I should say in English, these two ideas feel feel very different to us. Like demon oppression, the, the sense of being oppressed is like of some external or exterior to you force that is weighing on you somehow. Like like being, um, like being in a sauna or being in a rainforest or something like yeah. that, right? Yeah, the mm-hmm. heat, the humidity is oppressive. We'll even use that word to describe the weather sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's an external pressure. Whereas possession carries more of an idea of <clears throat> an internal um, control, more like you're a puppet. So in oppression, you um, there's the sense that the, the human agent is still has freedom of the will. They still have freedom to choose, but their choices may be limited or influenced by this oppressive force from the outside. Same way as like you would never wear a parka in the rainforest, right? Because of the oppression of the environment. But possession makes it sound more like you're a puppet and your free will, your agency, your choice is gone. And there's just a hand controlling you from the inside. But in Greek, both of those flavors are captured in one word, um, and, it, and there's, there's not a distinction made. The distinction is sort of made in the storytelling, like, okay, well, what was actually happening? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so if we were to kind of strictly translate Greek into English to try to capture that, we would have to use a word like uh, demonized. So you know, we would read like, then a demonized man who was blind and mute was brought to him. And okay, then, then it would be left to us as interpreters and readers to go like, well, is this oppression or, or is this possession? And the ESV that we generally use at Faith uh, is pretty careful to always translate it oppression unless there is a clues in the story itself where Jesus is commanding a demon to like come out of mm-hmm. a person. Um, so unless there's that, that movement out of the person or discussion about moving into a person, you know, or coming out of the person and into the pigs or whatever the story is in those contexts, the ESV tends to use possession. Otherwise it, it uses oppression and invites the reader to, to help see, you know, those helps the reader see those nuances uh, and okay. try to understand the difference. So in this case, what's really fascinating is um, here we have a demonized man with physical ailments, uh, blindness and muteness. Normally, uh, throughout the stories of Jesus's healings, um, demon demonization or demon oppression or demon possession leads to more along the lines of um, what look like mental breakdowns, like insanity or... Um, 
schizophrenia or some, you know, some sort of experience. And, and, and I'm certainly not trying to imply that those, what we, uh, you know, label those clinical diagnoses are caused by demons, but the descriptions of uh, people's, um, what they're doing you know, in these stories. Yeah, yeah. Their experiences. Yeah. Tend to be more in that mental instability realm. Mm-hmm. And in every case of a demonized person, Jesus heals the person or casts out the demon with a word. But in every case or just about every case where there's a physical problem, blindness, muteness, deafness, uh, lameness, uh, whatever, Jesus usually heals hands on. Um, he touches the person. He makes mud and you know puts it on their eyes. He sticks his fingers in their ears, whatever it is, right? there's some sort of physical contact. And, and this one, uh, this one verse here is fascinating because we've got the demonization coupled with a physical ailment mm-hmm. where the the word then used for the remedy is healing. Um, though we're not told, did Jesus just say something? Did he touch? Did he do something? But then the discussion is all about casting out demons. Yeah. So it's like w- everywhere else where it's almost very carefully kept distinct it's just all that language is just mashed into one verse here in this mm-hmm. story. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just a fascinatingly different. And, you know, does that mean that, yeah. Um, yeah. How, how are we to understand this story? Well, it's sort of like a paradigmatic story in that it's everything rolled into this one unnamed character who we, we've never met before and never hear from again. And um, even more just serves to to help us realize the story's not the point. The miracle's not the point. The point is everything that came after it, the discussion around it. Mm-hmm. So, Which is why it made your decision easy to like cut all of this because again, not the point, but that's why cut for time is great. We get to be able to talk about these things yeah. and unpack it. And yeah. Like, yeah, I would have, as a reader, I would have never known all of that or like realized all that packed up into that one verse, right? Um. But now that you've explained it that way, I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Of course, I do realize those patterns of mm-hmm. like um, physical ailments being different from typical demon possession or oppression. Um, so anyways, I just appreciate you pointing that out. Yeah. Yeah. And then it, it yeah, it's it's there's so much in there. And you're right. It, I would have put people to sleep um, and it really wouldn't tie into the rest of the point of of the sermon. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, as we went uh, through the text, I didn't uh, I didn't take a lot of time to talk about these characters that are mentioned here, Satan and mm-hmm. uh, Beelzebul. Right. Um, so to dig into those a little bit more. Yeah, let's do that. All right. So Satan, the word itself is a Hebrew word. So it's just transliterated into Greek. It's, you know, they, there's not a Greek equivalent. It's just this is a a, a character um, from the Old Testament, uh, a, a person that shows up in the Old Testament. And you know, we, we kind of read that it's, maybe this is the character that's in the garden. Um, we read of this character perhaps in Ezekiel when we read about like the falling of the morning star, um, but most clearly in Job, where the Satan uh, approaches mm-hmm. God and accuses Job of having done wrong or of having the potential to do wrong. And, and that's important because the word Satan means accuser it's not a name it's a title he is uh, this character is the accuser or the satan and it it's pictured uh almost like a a court system where 
this is the person who's responsible for uh, like, and what's the, now I'm blanking on what it, what it would be in a court system. It's not public accusation or whatever, but it, this is like the public prosecutor, right? This mm-hmm. is the guy mm-hmm. who represents the, the state in accusing someone of wrongdoing. And we, we kind of get this, this picture of a, of a character in, in the Jewish understanding who loved his job so much of getting to accuse people that he started causing people to, to sin so that he could accuse them. Um, so leading people into sin, leading mm. people into temptation. This is the the role of the accuser. So okay. when we read, um, you know, I didn't take the time to explain it in the sermon, but like when we read passages like this and we read of Satan, it's kind of better to read it as, and if the Satan casts out the Satan, right? Or if the accuser, to kind of translate it that way for ourselves, just to give yeah. us that like mental hiccup when we come across it of like, oh, right. This is a title. This is like it, this is more than just Satan, the big bad character that hides, you know, hides behind uh, right around the corner trying to tempt you into yeah. doing something wrong, right? Yeah. <clears throat> so uh, by the time we get to the the New Testament, this this guy Satan is um, has been sort of um, identified with uh, another character that shows up in the Old Testament named Beelzebul. And Beelzebul um, was a specific minor deity worshipped on this, you know, in this one area, um, in this in one adjacent country, and mm-hmm. wasn't really considered a main like a a major deity in the pantheon of gods that opposed the one true God. But uh, by the time we get to the New Testament, this one sort of minor deity, Beelzebul, had become. Uh, sort of understood as like, oh, that that's the right name for this accuser. Now the name itself is fun because uh, Beelzebul is the technical correct term, which means um, Prince Baal, you know, or Lord Baal. Um, but the, the Israelites had always just referred to this deity mockingly as Beelzebub, which means the Lord of the flies. So instead of Lord Baal, it's Lord, Lord of the flies. It's like mm-hmm. a, you know, it's like a playground taunt, right? Like where we're, you know, um, Lord Bale, it's more like Lord Fat Whale or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. So by the time we get here, New Testament, um, when you talk about Beelzebul, everyone is like, okay, so you're talking about sort of like the accuser, the figure that personifies for us our understanding of evil as an active force in the yeah. world. And mm-hmm. so they're accusing... Uh, Jesus of acting they're accusing Jesus of releasing people from the power of evil under the authority of the power of evil it's like well which is why the you know the accusation makes no sense right but right of, what's fascinating is they're accusing Jesus right they're being the accuser they are acting the role of Satan the accuser in accusing Jesus of acting under the authority of the accuser He's he's just looking at him like, dude, don't you guys see what you're doing? Like, this is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot in there. Thank you. Okay, Joey, we actually also had a question submitted on top of all the requests to unpack, you know, these um, verses that you didn't get to. But um, someone were, uh, asked a question about the unforgivable sin. Oh, yes. Yes. The unforgivable and, sin. Yes. And you kind of, you talked about it towards the end of your sermon, like, look, 
you summarized it like if you're worried about it you don't have to be worried about it or it's probably not something you need to be worried about or concerned about right, right. um well this person asks that they've heard it said that actually it was just only a sin that was able to be committed during jesus's time it's not even something that mm -hmm. we're able to do now have you heard mm -hmm. this argument before and then what's behind that is that true yeah yeah no it, it's a it's a helpful argument so the unforgivable sin or the the sin of blasphemy against the holy spirit you know that sin that cannot be forgiven um the, the best way to understand what Jesus is talking about here, because this is in a context of these Pharisees accusing him of acting under the power of Satan and categorically refusing to see anything he is doing. That is on the face of it is like, this is obviously the work of the spirit of God. And Matthew makes that clear by quoting from Isaiah 42, right before this story that I will put my spirit on this one. God says okay. this servant in whom I am pleased. And this is Jesus. Like this is the work of the spirit. And if you're seeing the clear manifest work of the spirit in the world, as especially at Jesus's time, as was predicted, as was understood to be coming by God through this servant on whom he had given his spirit. And you're seeing all of that. And you're like, the only explanation for this is evil. This is pure evil. Mm -hmm. Like, look, if you're seeing that and you're, you're categorically refusing to acknowledge this as the work of God, like there's no real coming back from that. Um, so seeing the work of the spirit, ascribing it to Satan, this is the unforgivable sin. And so mm -hmm. there is some merit to the argument of <clears throat> this could only happen during Jesus's lifetime, because only during Jesus's lifetime could you see him right in front of you uh, doing this work that is obviously anointed by the spirit and that and choose to refuse it. I think there's some valid, some validity, some merit to that argument. Uh, the only reason I, I don't stop there is because the this story was recorded for the church. This warning was recorded in the narrative of Jesus's life so that the church would learn from it, you know, even 2000 years later. So this passage has to have something to say to us or some way that we, we understand it as being uh, applicable or at least informative for our own lives. And so take that and couple it with an understanding of even in the scriptures themselves, through the illumination of the Holy Spirit, we do encounter the work of Jesus in a different way than those who saw it you know, firsthand. But we do encounter the work of Jesus in a way uh, or to an extent that makes us um, culpable or responsible for you know, seeing the work of Jesus through the scriptures and then ignoring it or rejecting it. And so that warning applies, mm -hmm. I think, still today that you could you can find yourself drawn to this person, Jesus, seeing his work in scripture, seeing his work in the gospels, seeing his work even in other people's lives in the church around the world. And if you see all of that and say, I refuse to believe this is anything but evil. Mm -hmm. um, that's a pretty settled uh, position in which um, Jesus warns us uh, forgiveness is pretty much impossible to mm -hmm. find. Yeah. Um, in our first attempted recording of Cut for Time, yeah. we also had a chance to explain a little bit about what, how to define evil, like what is evil, oh, yeah, evil yeah, yeah. Is the lack of good or if yes. anything created. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. Yeah, no, I'm glad you remember that because um, that was a fun discussion. Yeah, so it it is important for us to, to wrap our minds around the idea that evil is not a positive force. It is not a constructive 
force. Um, you can think of evil. Um, well, let me put it this way. Like some people will say, hey, God created everything. Does that mean God created sin? Well, no, because sin isn't a, strictly speaking, evil and sin are not things that can be created. They are the lack of things. Evil is the lack of good or the absence of good mm -hmm. um, or the tearing down of good. It is like um, goodness is, say, building a car, you know, constructing a building. Evil is the rust on the car or the, the force of gravity th that pulls down the building over time. Um, evil is only ever destructive. It is never constructive. It cannot build mm -hmm. something. It can only destroy something from the inside. So evil, it, it's better to think of evil as like uh, a hole in the ground. Um, you don't, even though we use the, the, the language this way, you don't make a hole in the ground. You don't make the absence of something. I mean, you just, you're just removing dirt is what you're doing, right? A hole isn't a thing. It's the lack of a thing. It's where mm -hmm. there should be a thing, but that thing's not there. So a hole is a, is a, is a non-entity uh, in a similar way. Evil is a non-entity. It is the, um, the corruption or the absence of good. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's important for us to remember that because when we, we ask questions like, you know, the capacity to, com to commit evil acts or can God do evil? Could mm -hmm. Jesus sin? could God do something evil or sin? Or even does um, evil have the power to mm -hmm. do X, Y, Z, right? Exactly, right, right. So, you know, there's a um, fascinating illustration of Satan in somewhere in Peter talking, and I forget the, the reference, where he says, beware, your adversary is like a roaring lion prowling about seeking whom he can devour, mm -hmm. right? So what's, what's, and I want to come back to that illustration in just a moment here, that image, because we read it metaphorically, and I think we should probably read it a little bit more literally. And here's what I mean. When we talk about Satan or the accuser, we tend to talk about this character, and, and I've used the word character a number of times um, specifically. We tend to talk about this character as a, a almost an equal but opposite force to God. Right. Mm -hmm. So like God is pure good. Satan is pure evil. And somewhat in sort of our popular conceptions of this, we're like, yeah, God is all powerful for good. And Satan is like super powerful for evil, maybe. And you got to be careful because he might be tempting you to do all these things. He's always everywhere, all around the corner, or at least his demons are and his minions are and all that stuff. Um, and there's some good, healthy warning in that uh, don't underestimate the power of evil but mm -hmm. satan when when satan satan was originally a created being an angel um the bearer of light was his name the name given to him and i think ezekiel lucifer the the light bearer the lux bearer um when satan fell that fall what comes with that fall is sort of a descent into what I would call sub-personality. Meaning, okay, God, angels, human beings, we are persons. Uh, we have the ability to, uh, we are independent creatures who have the ability to think rationally and pursue the good in some way or another. Satan, having, having fallen from the, the heights of being an, an, an angel in God's throne room 
has fallen below the level of human beings and is at the level, more like at the level of an animal. Meaning mm. he's like a roaring lion pursuing, you know, prowling around seeking mm. whom he may, he may uh, devour. We use words like want and desire and love and seeking and things like that of animals <clears throat> but we don't apply to those animals uh, the preconception of like rational thought. You know, my cats, we'll talk about our, oh man, I just said my cats, our cats, <laughs> right? <laughs> the four cats that our family owns, they all have things that they like, things they want, things they desire. But we don't, when we use those words like want, desire, we don't mean them in the same way we mean them about persons, about people, humans, rational creatures. We don't mean that the cats, um, analyze the various options and have come to the decision that this particular cat food is best. They just like it or they don't, right? So I, I, Satan, I think, seeks to devour. Satan opposes the forces of God in the same way that, or similar way that a lion um, rules a kingdom mm -hmm. and seeks to devour whatever will satisfy its hunger. Right. Yeah. Um, Satan seeks to destroy the kingdom of God in the same way that a lion loves to rip apart a gazelle mm -hmm. um, and just devour that thing. Satan is deceptive and is, um, yeah, wily. <laughs> I'm not sure what the other word for it is. He's deceptive um, and plotting in the same way that a cheetah can stalk its prey. Mm -hmm. And can, you know, stay low and stay in the grass and whatever, and can very carefully um, and very deceptively stalk its prey. So Satan, like a lion, seeks to devour and destroy, never to construct, never to build. But I think that that seeking uh, to destroy, that seeking to devour, we should understand it more in an animalistic sense of like, you're just opposed, like a, like a lion loves to rip apart you know, small furry creatures, um, Satan just loves to rip things, rip apart anything that is good. Mm -hmm. um, so if, if we have that perspective, we resist the temptation to over ascribe personality or um, rationality or like plotting or, um, you know, the sense that like Satan's got authority. this, this yeah. evil. Yeah, exactly. He has authority in the same way that a lion has authority um, over its kingdom. Right. Um, but we, we tend to ascribe to Satan, this evil master plan. Yeah. That he has, right. There's no master plan. The master plan is the same master plan that a school of piranhas has whenever some chunk of meat falls in the middle of them. It's devour everything until there's nothing left. That's the master plan. And that's why I think we see so much more uh, demonic activity or resistance from Satan during Jesus's lifetime on earth. It's it, more than in the Old Testament, more than in the letters afterwards. It's like, wow, there was a lot of activity right here. It's like, well, that's what happens when you, you drop food into the piranha tank. That's what happens when a, a herd of gazelle come by a lion, like they attack and, mm -hmm. um, it's that, the son of God terrible. on earth that is going to be, yeah, that's going to yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah. draw that attention. Yeah, it's going to draw that attention and draw that attack. So I, yeah. I don't want to underplay the power of evil or even of the personal sense with which 
um, evil can stalk uh, and and uh, you feel the sort of force or presence of evil uh, as some have have uh, described it. But nor do I want to overplay the personality of Satan as um, this conniving figure with a master plan for how to rule the universe. I think it's a lot more base and animalistic than that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, Joey, we appreciate you going through that. And, um, you know, we don't have an opportunity for people to ask questions following cut for time. Like you don't have a good way to answer those. So if people are listening to this, right. they have questions. Um, we're not going to do necessarily a follow-up podcast episode to cut for time. Um, though we could, if we could find time, but um, yeah, we're here on Thursday recording. Yeah. We're here on Thursday. Wednesday's episode. <laughs> yeah. I guess so, if, if people text in next time I, I'm up, uh, on an episode, you can be like, hey, we got a flashback from the archives two weeks ago. You preached this. Here's a follow-up question. Yes. And people could always text in. They can email podcast at Faith Live It Out. We can email responses. You're like willing to yeah. field those questions. So yeah. For sure. For sure. Okay. Yeah. All right. Thanks for fun. your time, Joey. Again. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I hope the audio works this time and that, you know, demons didn't get into the system like last time. Yeah, you know, well, we'll find out when I listen back. So Fingers That's crossed. right. If if no one if you're hearing this, it means it works, right? <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks, Joey. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Cut for Time. If you wish to submit questions to our pastors following their sermon, you can email them to podcast at faithliveitout.org or text them into our Faith Church texting number, and we'll do our best to cover it in the week's episode. If this conversation blessed you in any way, we encourage you to share it with others. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again next week.